Well, when I was a youth pastor at First Presbyterian Oosburg, we had the privilege of taking the high school students every other year on a short-term mission trip to Compton, California. And in Compton, California, there is a church plant there by the name of City Church of Compton, and that church is pastored by Pastor Pat Dirksey. And the reason why we knew of this church is that we had a connection with Pastor Pat. Um, Pat and I actually grew up in the same home church together, which is Hingham Reformed Church in Hingham, Wisconsin. So he and I grew up in the same church. And then Pat's brother, Greg Dirksey, was, uh, attended First Presbyterian Oosburg, which is where I was the youth pastor. And so we had all these sort of local connections with this guy who was the pastor of a church plant out in Compton, California. And one of the reasons why I loved going to Compton is because it was the closest thing to an international mission trip without it being an international mission trip. Because the culture was profoundly different than Oosburg. I mean, right off the bat, Compton is an urban culture and Oosburg is a rural culture. Compton is uh, extremely populated and Oosburg is pretty sparsely populated. Compton is uh, black, Latino, and riddled with crime. And Oosburg is largely white and middle class. And there's just people and stuff everywhere. I mean, I remember, you know, in Oosburg, you might wake up from the train running through town at midnight. There's a midnight train that always comes through. Um, in Compton, uh, there are many different things that wake you up. I mean, number one, you're hearing fireworks all night long, and you're always asking, am I hearing fireworks or am I hearing gunshots? And I remember one night, we I'm pretty sure it was gunshots because there was a distinct popping sound that you don't get with fireworks. And then I remember one night we were woken up in Compton. All the guys would sleep in the church building that was this renovated like four-car garage that they made the church building. And one night we just woke up in the middle of the night because a police helicopter had its searchlight on and it pointed the searchlight right at the church. And so the room just lit up like it was the middle of the day with this searchlight. We were all like, whoa, you know, and we all woke up. And so it's a totally, totally different culture. Um, I remember one time we were out at the beach. It was one of the first times that we were out in Compton and we would go to worship in the morning at the church and then we would go to the beach for the rest of the day. And we're on the beach and one of our students, his name was Sawyer Daney, He says to me, he said, hey, Bill, look over there. He said, we're not at home anymore. And I turned and I looked, and here on the beach were four people sitting on their beach towels, and they were eating salads out of their Tupperware containers. And I thought, yeah, we are not at home anymore. Because when Wisconsinites go to the beach, we pack the three Bs. We pack brats, burgers, and beer, all right? And anything else that's unhealthy, we bring to the beach. In California, they bring salads in Tupperware containers. Who eats salads on the beach, you know? And it was like just this total indicator that we are not at home. Another thing that tells you and screams you're not at home when you're in California is the traffic. I remember the first time we went out there, one of the parents we brought along was riding in his car. And here is a guy who now lives in Idaho with acres of land upon which he can hunt. Okay, So this is an outdoorsman that I'm riding with. And he had this real gravelly voice from a lifetime of smoking. And I remember he said to me, he was driving, and he would just mutter under his breath, like every five minutes, it's a concrete jungle, you know? And, <laughs> and I remember he got so mad about the traffic one time that um, he actually, like, swore. And I'm like, calm down, calm down. Like, we're on a youth mission trip. Like, settle down. And it's going to be okay. But you could just tell this was not his home. This is not our home. In Oosburg, you can get anywhere in five minutes. In Los Angeles, everything is an hour away. Doesn't matter if it's two miles away. Doesn't matter if it's 15 miles away. It's an hour. I remember talking to this city church member who uh, was working at a landfill, and his commute was about 20 miles, but it took him an hour and a half one way to get there. It's just everything's so far away. It's so different from what we know in Oosburg, where everything is five minutes away. One of the things 
to his, even just parking lots, scream at you, you're not at home. Because even here in, in Mequon or in Cedarburg or wherever, uh, it was Aki County and Oostburg, you can find a parking spot pretty easily anywhere you go. But in Compton or in Southern California in Los Angeles, you have to wait for parking spots. One of the things that we would do is we would fly into LAX, and then we were always hungry, so we would do the first thing we would do is stop at In-N-Out Burger, and this was always a great pleasure of mine because I got to introduce our freshmen to In-N-Out Burger, and it just you know blew their minds. And um, we're eating at In-N-Out Burger, but you had to drive the parking lot and wait for someone to leave their parking spot so that you could take it. You better hope that you're lined up right so that, you know, you have the, sp- the angle that you need to get the spot as someone else is leaving. This is just to get a parking spot at a fast food restaurant. It's just there really are more people than there is space out there in Southern California. And so it's this incredibly cool place to go, and it's an amazing place to go on a mission trip, and I, I hope someday that we can bring a group out there because it's life's transformative, and, and, I lo- and I love what they're doing out there. But everywhere you go, it just reminds you you're not at home. You're not at home. There are some parts of Southern California that are really beautiful. Like this was taken from the top of this hill where you can look out and see a bunch of stuff. And it's called Signal Hill. And we would hang out there sometimes in our evenings. And um, just absolutely beautiful. But even as you're staring out over this landscape and seeing all this stuff, and the weather is absolutely incredible. I mean, Pat, Pat tells me that it rains eight days of the year out there. They see rain eight days of the year. Otherwise, take the best day of Wisconsin, and that's what it is every day of the year out there, the best day of Wisconsin. And so it's absolutely beautiful, but it just reminds you, you're not at home. You're not at home. And by the end of the week, I really missed my home. It was fun. It was exciting. Sometimes it was beautiful, but I missed my home. And I tell you this story because our author today of Psalms is in a similar position because he is writing this psalm from his exiled position in Babylon, which is actually a very pretty place to be. There's a lot of pretty views. There's a lot of pretty landscape. But he's riding from the banks of a river. You can see how Babylon is situated between the Euphrates and the Tigris Tigris River. And he's riding, sitting on the riverbanks, which is a beautiful spot to be, but he's not home. And he's longing for his home. This is where we're at today. He says this. He says, beside the rivers of Babylon, so he's riding from the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem, as we thought of the home that we've been exiled from, as we thought of the home that we miss. And then he goes on to say, but how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in this pagan land of Babylon? And so this is his view. He's sitting at the Euphrates River, and it's a really beautiful spot to be, but he's missing his home of Jerusalem. He's missing his home country of Judah because he's not at home. He's in exile. And similarly, when we went to Southern California, it's a beautiful place to be. This is off of this picture is taken off of Mulholland Drive, which is this famous uh, drive up in the mountains, yeah, you know, where a bunch of rich people lived, and um, there's these places where you can pull off and take a picture, and, and, um, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous as you look out over the city and over all the smog, <laughs> no, but it is actually pretty beautiful, but uh, it's not home. You miss your home, and that's what our author of Psalms is writing from today. He's writing from this beautiful place in Babylon, but he's missing his home. And so the Bible uses a word called, or we use a word called exile to refer to being in a place that is not your home, all right? When you're exiled, you're in a place that is not your home. And what's interesting is that the exile theme is really a big one in Scripture, but it's often overlooked. And what I want to do today is I want to trace this, narr- this theme of exile through the narrative of Scripture as sort of a broad overview. And I hope by the time we're done with it, you're going to say, why have I never seen that theme before? Because it's not talked about very often. And I hope that we can kind of bring this theme to light and we can trace this theme of exile, this theme of being somewhere that's not our home through the Scriptures. 
So our scripture opens, and God creates this good and perfect universe, and in that universe, he places this earth, and on the earth, he builds this garden, which is going to serve as a home. He builds this garden called the Garden of Eden, and in that garden, he places the first two humans, Adam and Eve, and Garden of Eden is the human's home, and they have this incredible job of spreading God's reign over the earth and reflecting who he is to the rest of creation and using what God has given them to continue God's creative work and continue his creative process, but they're not satisfied with that job of being his rain spreaders and his reflectors. And so what they do is they rebel and eat from a tree that God forbade them to eat from. And they bring, for the first time in the history of humanity, they disobey God, which fractures their relationship with God, introduces a a, a wedge in the relationship that they have with God. It condemns all of humanity and all of creation to death. And as a result of that, here's what happens to Adam and Eve. They're living in this perfect garden in their home. They break the rules they disobey God, and now here's what happens to them. Look at Genesis 3.23. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And so humanity introduces sin into the world, and as a result of that sin, Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden because they can no longer be in the presence of God. They've severed their relationship with God. This is a really sad point in Scripture, and it only is three chapters into the Bible. But here's where we can see the love of God at work because God begins the work of repairing that relationship and bringing his people back home again. And you could almost say that the rest of the narrative of Scripture is God bringing his people back home again after they sinned and were sent into exile. So now we get to the second generation of humans ever. All right, and this is, we get to these brothers, Cain and Abel, who are the, the, the sons of Adam and Eve. And they both bring sacrifices to God, but God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice and he's displeased with Cain's sacrifice because Abel brought a sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord and, and Cain brought his leftovers and so the Lord was displeased. And so now Cain is mad at Abel because Abel had the pleasing sacrifice and he had the displeasing sacrifice. And so it only takes one generation of humans for murder to be introduced into the world. And so So Cain murders Abel. And as a result of Cain murdering Abel, here's what happens to Cain. But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. And so now Cain is headed into exile because of his sin. You're seeing the pattern. Humans sin, humans sever the relationship with God, and now they are exiled. And you see how these effects of sin are compounding rapidly, that it only takes one generation of humans to introduce murder into the world. We'll skip ahead a little bit, and now we're introduced to another pair of brothers. And this pair of brothers is Esau and Jacob. And in this culture, we call it the ancient Near East, in this ancient Near Eastern culture, the older son, which was Esau, would be entitled to this thing called a birthright. It was like a, an inheritance, a special blessing that the dad would pass on to his older son. And so Esau is the older brother. He's the one on the left. He's hairy. He has uh, uh, the, the rights to the birthright, all right, to this inheritance. But Jacob on the right is the younger brother, and he is a trickster and a conniver. And so he figures out a way with his mom to steal his older brother's blessing because his dad Isaac, at this point, is old and bedridden and he's blind. And so Jacob masquerades as Esau and goes into his dad Isaac's tent, posing as his older brother, and he manages to steal the blessing because Isaac blesses his son, thinking he's blessing Esau, when in reality he's blessing Jacob disguised as Esau, and he passes on the blessing, Jacob steals the blessing, and now Esau... 
Esau is rightfully really angry that his conniving little brother stole his birthright. And so Esau is threatening all sorts of murder and vengeance and blood. And, and Jacob's like, I got to get out of here. And his mom says, you got to get out of here. Esau wants to kill you. And so Jacob is exiled because he's running away from his brother. And this begins a pattern of exile for Jacob because he's such a conniver and such a, a, a trickster that his pattern of his life is trick somebody, make them mad. Now I got to run away because they're angry. And so his life is a life of exile. And the very next generation... Jacob has 12 sons, and one of his sons is the favorite. So he makes this horrible parenting mistake of showing favoritism, and then he compounds that mistake by not being discreet about it because he gives his favorite son, Joseph, a coat of many colors, which doesn't sit well with the other brothers, and again, envy is at work here. And so his other brothers want to kill Joseph because he's clearly the favorite and got this expensive coat from his dad. And so they come up with this plan to murder Joseph, and they throw him in a hole, and then thankfully one of the brothers stands up for Joseph and says, no, let's not kill him, let's just sell him off. And this group of traders comes by, and they sell Joseph off to these traders. And these traders take Joseph to Egypt, where they sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And so begins this life of a roller coaster ride of ups and downs for Joseph. And now already, as a young boy, he's living in exile in Egypt. And he will live the rest of his life in exile in Egypt. And so Joseph, through this roller coaster ride of ups and downs in his life, actually becomes the second in command in Egypt. Because through, uh, through Pharaoh's dreams, God revealed to Joseph that there was going to be this famine in the land. And so Joseph tells the Pharaoh, hey, we got to store up food because there's going to be this famine. And the Pharaoh makes Joseph the second in command in all of Egypt to oversee this food storage efforts that they're putting in. And so lo and behold, many years later, Joseph's very brothers who sold him off into slavery from Egypt come down to Egypt from Canaan because they live in the north. They come down to Egypt looking for food. And Joseph ends up moving the entire family down to Egypt where there's plenty of food. And here's where we see God using exile to try to bring his people back home again. Because even though Egypt is not their home of Canaan, God has brought the whole family down into Egypt where it's a safe place for them to have plenty of food and where he can grow his nation and grow his people who are going to be his imagers and rain spreaders. And then we turn the page of Genesis to the book of Exodus, and now the circumstances have changed dramatically because 400 years have gone by, and no longer is the Pharaoh sympathetic to the family of Joseph because at this point, the family of Joseph has multiplied into this nation, and the Pharaoh now has enslaved them, and so they're in, they're in slavery, and he's worried that because they're multiplying so fast, there's going to be rebellion, and so he orders the death of all the firstborn Hebrew slaves. And this one woman is going to rebel against this order, and she protects her newborn baby, Moses. She places Moses in a basket and sends him up the river. And already, this little baby of Moses is already headed into exile in his little basket down the river. And he bumps into the legs of Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter ends up raising him in the palace as an Egyptian. And so Moses, from infancy, is raised in the exile of the palace. And then one day, Moses comes upon this slave Egyptian slave driver who is mistreating a Hebrew slave. And Moses, welling up with his sense of justice, actually ends up killing the Egyptian slave driver. And now worried about what's going to happen to Moses, he runs away to the desert because he's worried about what could happen to him for killing an Egyptian slave driver. And so again, he runs off into exile, and it's during his exile in the wilderness that God speaks to him through this burning bush and says, you're going to be my guy who's going to lead my people out of their slavery in Egypt, and, and God does 
this incredible events by, by sending plagues on the Egyptians and, and convincing Pharaoh to let the people go. And, and so eventually the people get released from Egypt. And now Moses is tasked with leading them to the cusp of the promised land. And he leads them to the very outskirts of the promised land and he sends in spies to see what their new home is going to be like. Again, right? God is bringing his people back home. And they're on the cusp of going back to the land they once knew, going back home. And so Moses brings the people to the cusp of the promised land, the cusp of their home, and the spies go in and they come back with this bad report. And they come back and they say, there's no way we can live here because the people are giants and the cities are fortified and their military is huge and they would squash us if we would even try to go in there. And so God is angry at their lack of faith. He was about to, they're about to get to go back home. And in his anger, now they are condemned to wandering the wilderness, uh, 40 more years of exile, wandering the wilderness as a punishment for their lack of faith. And so 40 years later, again, we see God bringing his people back home again. They're about to enter the promised land again after 40 years of wandering. God has raised up a new leader, Joshua, at this point, who's going to lead his people into their new home. And so Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and they begin settling down. And then as we flash forward a few years, Israel begins asking for a king. And God gives them their first king, Saul, and then their second king, David. And this is a really toxic situation. Because Saul, as the first king, did not do the Lord's will. His heart was divided, and God rips the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to David. And so you have this toxic situation where Saul is still on the throne. He's still alive and well. He's still reigning, but David has been anointed as the next king. And so again, the envy factor is off the charts. And Saul, in his envy and in his anger, begins to hunt down David and wants to kill David. So David has to flee. So again, here David goes into an exile of wilderness fleeing away from Saul. And to David's credit, he, ne- he had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he never did because he trusted in the Lord's plan. And so David is running around in exile in the wilderness trying to get away from Saul. And eventually, Saul would die in battle and David would ascend to the throne. And when David is reigning, things are really, really good for Israel. In fact, you would say that during David's reign, Israel was the closest that they ever got to being the picture of God's kingdom priest, reign spreaders, reflectors that, he ever, that they ever got. All right? And so David is reigning from his throne. And towards the end of his reign, or when David is done reigning, the arrow for Israel begins to point downward. And you see this at the end of his reign because David's sons rise up and begin to fight one another in an attempt to try to seize the throne. And this David's son Absalom actually is so bloodthirsty and so rebellious that David has to run away again and flee into exile again to get away from his son who wants to capture the throne and kill him. And so David ends his life with his sons fighting and with him having to be on the run away from his son Absalom. And so after David is... After David, king after king is going to lead Israel further and further away from the heart of God, and it's going to run the nation right into the ground. And so at the, finally, things come to a head in 586 BC when this rising power at the time named Babylon lays siege to the capital city of Jerusalem in Judah, and the walls fall on, in 586, and the invading army marches into the city, which marks the end of the nation of Judah and the end of God's people as a nation. And so Babylon marches into the city of Jerusalem, and now the people that were in Babylon are exiled. They must leave the city of Babylon. They are exiled to this foreign nation of Babylon, to this, their capital city of Babylon. And so here in the Garden of Eden and in the Babylonian exile, you have two quintessential exile moments where people are banished from the home that they knew. And now they're forced to go into a place that is not their home and a place that is foreign to them. All right? 
You have a moment where human sin continues to compound upon itself and it leads to exile over and over again. You see this pattern. You see this theme in Scripture of humans. All we do is sin. All we do is compound the problem. And all we do is lead ourselves further and further away from our home. It's sin, exile, sin, exile, sin, exile. Even David was the closest that Israel ever was to being that picture of God's images and reign spreaders and kingdom priests. And even when David was reigning and times were good, he still wound up twice having to run into exile in his life. And then after David, the arrow points downward, leading right into the Babylonian exile. It's sin, exile, sin, exile. Who will show us the way home? Because all we do is compound our sin and wind up in a place that's not our home. Who is going to show us the way home? And the Lord sends us someone who shows us the way home. Philippians 3.20 says, But we are citizens of heaven. We have a true citizenship that's not here, but that is in heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Jesus is the true citizen of heaven in his Father's house. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He came once, and he's coming back to show us the way home. Jesus chooses exile to show us the way home. Jesus came to this earth. He left his heavenly throne and temporarily renounced his heavenly citizenship with his dad in heaven to come into our exile here on earth, our sinful being here on earth, and he further goes into exile by going into the exile of death and the separation of God that is death. He goes into the exile to conquer that exile, to ascend back into his throne in heaven and to show us this is the way to my dad's house. This is the way to your true home. Your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in eternity with me and my dad in the new heavens and the new earth. We are not citizens of this earth. We are citizens of heaven. And Jesus shows us how to get there. Here's what he tells his disciples. He says this. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? So he's preparing a place for for us in his father's home where our true citizenship lies. And he says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you. He's going to show us the way home so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. He's saying, I'm showing you the way. You know the way. And then his disciples say, say exactly what we would have said. No, we don't, right? We don't know the way. And Thomas says, no, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Thank you, Thomas, for saying what everyone wants to say but didn't feel like we could say. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. No one finds home except through me. Nobody finds my dad's house except through me. When it's left up to humans, We explore all these different ways, and none of them lead home. All of them lead to sin, all of them lead to death, and all of them ultimately lead to exile. That's all we can find, is exile, death, and sin, over and over and over again. And so we need Jesus, God himself, to leave his home, to come to us and come into our exile and into our sin and into our death to show us the true way home. It's through him and only him. He is the only way to our true home, folks. He is the only way to our home with his Father in the new heavens and the new earth. We're not citizens here. We're citizens of heaven when we believe in Jesus who shows us the way to his dad's house. That's where our citizenship lies. Amen.